ladies and gentlemen, Barry Court. In my late 30s, I met a divorcee uh, who was dyslexic. And at the time, this was back in the 80s. At the time, I didn't know what dyslexia was. I thought it meant that she got left and right mixed up. Later on, I had to, you know, look it up and figure out the rest of the story. But it turned out that she had she had a, a reading disability that was caused by a, a genetically inherited disorder that caused um, her eyes to kind of, the, you know, the saccades in your eyes kind of move psychotically to, you know, to help your vision. She had a, a, a disorder in the saccades, and so her eyes kind of jerked, kind of like in a sawtooth pattern all the time. And that made it hard for her to read. And so she had almost no book-learning knowledge. She learned almost everything by direct experience, you know, by listening and talking, and, but not by reading. And I was just the opposite. Most of my knowledge I, I got from, from learning by reading, and very little from direct experience. So um, she was a first grade teacher, which was okay because in first grade you don't do a lot of reading. First graders read polysyllabic words very slowly, so that wasn't an issue for her. But I, I suggested that she go back to the uh, community college to get a, a master's in education so she could advance her career. She took me up on the suggestion. turned out that one of the required courses was a course called Statistics for Education. I've got tons and tons of math, you know, under my belt, and I tutored math all the way through high school and college and as an adult. But she had an enormous amount of math anxiety, and I've seen math anxiety before, but nothing like this. This was just enormous. And also, she had, um, she was emotionally volatile. I mean, she had not just math anxiety, she would fly off the handle for seemingly no reason at all, all the time. I was very perplexed about, you know, why she was had this emotional volatility. She gets up to chapter four in this statistics for education, and she comes around and she's absolutely stuck. But not just stuck. I mean, she's just fit to be tied. So, well, let, let's take a look at your at your homework. So the homework uh, for chapter four, which was on uh, hypothesis testing, that was the subject of chapter four. She had to do the uh, the problems at the back of the chapter. And she had no idea how to do them and was just, you know, extremely uh, distressed. So I said, well, let's take a look at the very first problem. First problem was a word problem. The word problem went like this. The principal in an elementary school is surveying how the students are doing in the different classrooms. And he notices that in the classroom, some students are raising their hand and, and volunteering to recite. And other students are reticent and they're holding back. And he notices, the principal notices that the ones who are volunteering to recite are getting the better grades, and the ones that are holding back and not volunteering to recite are getting the, the uh, lower grades. So the principal forms a hypothesis. Hypothesis is that being verbal, uh, speaking up, causes high grades. And so he mandates a, uh, a course in, in the public speaking for all the students, uh, assuming that, that will improve their grades. And the, the problem is critique the principal's hypothesis. My friend is absolutely stuck. She has no idea how to even think about this problem. So I'm using the, the Socratic method. I don't want to just give away the answer because that would spoil the exercise. So I start asking questions in the style of the Socratic method, which is how I always 
used to coach math anyway. So in the Socratic method, if you ask a question and they don't know how to answer it, you ask a simpler question. And you keep simplifying the question until you eventually get down to what I call the atomic question. The atomic question is where you say, well, would you say A or B, where the answer is obviously one of those two. So I got down to the atomic question. Uh, would you say that being verbal causes high grades? Would you say it's the other way around, that getting high grades causes them to be verbal? Could it be a coincidence or maybe something else like studying the night before and knowing the answer causes both? So basically I lay out um, four possibilities for the arrow of causality. A causes B, B causes A, it's just an association, or they have a common underlying cause. And I'm sort of ticking off the four. And as I do this, she has an epiphany. When I say she has an epiphany, I mean she has an emotional outburst like I've never seen before. She's screaming at the top of her lungs. This seems to be a very important idea. And she's furiously writing it down. And I'm sort of startled by this case where I was present at the moment of an emotional outburst, which is clearly precipitated by this little episode. So I start to reinforce it. And she says, shut up, shut up. i got to write this down before I lose it. So over the next few days, I was scratching my head about this, this anecdotal observation. Here, after all this time, I've seen all this emotion where I had no idea where it was coming from. Suddenly, I saw that she had a gap in learning that was so profound as I never would have guessed it, except that I was using the Socratic method. And I precipitated this, this epiphany, this moment of, of aha. Um, where she understood something that, for me, as a scientist, as an engineer, I just took for granted. I've known this basically all my life. So I thought, wait a second. Finally, I see a connection between an expression of emotion and an episode of learning where I was midwifing the epiphany. I was present at the moment. And so I, th I thought, holy shamoli, I never noticed before the connection between emotions and learning, except for this one anecdote. So I thought, Gee, let me, let me double check this. And so I began to pay more attention, and I realized that a great amount of our emotions are associated with learning or absence of knowledge or absence of the ability to solve a problem or figure things out. So over time, as I thought about this, I began to structure this relationship between emotions and learning. And there's a chart in that paper uh, that shows a learning curve. Now, everybody's heard of learning curves. It's kind of a cliche. And when people draw learning curves, they usually draw them rising steeply at the beginning and then slowly leveling off, but always rising and then kind of flattening out. And I thought, nah, that's not right, because we don't learn error-free. A learning curve that rises and never falls is called monotonic. That's a term of mathematics for always going the same direction, never turning around and going back. I said, but when we learn, we sometimes have misconceptions. We learn things incorrectly. So we have beliefs which are incorrect. And at some point, we figure out that something we once thought was the case isn't. And we have to discard our misconceptions and throw away an erroneous belief. So a learning curve really doesn't always rise. Sometimes it falls when we discard a misconception. So I put wiggles in my learning curve. It rises up to a point where you have a belief. Then you weed out the misconceptions and your cumulative knowledge that you, that you rely on declines briefly. 
and then you discover a, a better idea, a better hypothesis, and you replace the previous myth with something better. So a learning curve has these wiggles. So the first thing it has is a slope. It can rise steeply, that's fast learning. It can rise slowly, that's slow learning. But you also have unlearning. That's when the slope turns negative, it goes downhill. But you also have this curvature. And now I've, I've highlighted the curvature of the learning curve. Not just that it kind of slows down, but it actually has these phases where it's curving downwards like a frowny face, and times when it's curving upwards like a smiley face. I thought, that's where the emotions are. They're in the curvature of the learning curve. When you're laboring under a misconception, you're building a belief, but the belief has got a flaw in it. It's either, it's either an error or it's got gaps in it. And eventually, what happens is that your expectations, you have a hypothesis, you have a belief, and you have expectations based on it. It's like making a prediction in science. If the prediction doesn't come true, then you think, there's something wrong with my model. My hypothesis, my belief, my model is, is buggy. It's not, it's not making accurate predictions. And so you become kind of disappointed or maybe surprised or maybe frustrated and eventually, you suspect that there's something wrong with your theory, with your model, with your hypothesis, and you go looking for a better one. Your emotions will go negative if you're laboring under a misconception. When you start to build a new idea that seems to be working better, your emotions go positive. You start to become hopeful uh, and, and have positive expectations again. <clears throat> what I got out of this single anecdotal observation was this mathematical model relating emotions to learning and so as time goes along <clears throat> on, that, on that chart uh, in that paper, the vertical axis is cumulative knowledge and beliefs. The slope of the learning curve is learning. And the curvature, the second derivative, if you know the terms in calculus, and the higher order derivatives correspond to emotions. So I made this discovery back around 1985. And I thought, no, I've taken Psych 101. And I've, how, come, how come I've never come across this model before? I, you know, either either it wasn't covered in any of the books I I read on psychology, or you know, or maybe I just you know wasn't paying attention that day. So I went looking in the literature to see if I had simply stumbled onto something that was well known, and I couldn't find it anywhere in the literature. I thought, can this be an original theory that's not anywhere in the existing literature? I mean, I'm not even a psychologist. You know, I'm I'm a you know, an engineer, a network planner. So I mentioned to a, uh, some of my colleagues in academia about this model relating emotions to learning, and they kept saying, "Barry, this can't be an inner, this cannot be an original theory. You know, it's got to be in the literature. You're just not looking hard enough." I said, "I looked and looked and looked." They said, "You're not looking hard enough." So finally, my friend, who uh, was a professor at MIT Media Lab, says, "All right, I'm going to look." So she looks, and she finds a little bit of stuff about emotions in literature, not very much, but she doesn't find my model. And she says, this model doesn't seem to exist anywhere in the literature. It appears to be a novel model. Now, by this time, it's the mid-90s. <laughs> and so I've been, you know, talking about this model, this, this hypothesis of, that emotions are the uh, second derivative with respect to time of the learning curve. And my friend at MIT, she after she does this this um, literature survey, she says, you know, now that I've done all this literature survey, I'm going to write a brief paper documenting my literature search because I did find some stuff. She says, not the stuff that you're talking about, but some other interesting stuff. 
So she writes a brief paper on the literature uh, search, and uh, she even comes over to where I'm working at, at uh, Bolt, Brannock, and Newman and gives a, a brown bag lunch about it. And then about a year later, she says, uh, she says, you remember that, that paper that I, I wrote about um, emotions? I said, sure, I remember it. Your literature. So she says, she says, I'm going to turn that into a book. And after a year, she writes a book called Affective Computing. Her name is Rosalind Park. She writes a book called Affective Computing, and she founds this entire new discipline in um, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, called Affective Computing. This is the mid-90s. And about this time, another colleague of mine who's a, uh, um, a primary school teacher out in western Massachusetts who's beginning to use the Internet at the uh, school, uh, I meet him at a IEEE meeting, and uh, he wants to get his school on the Internet. And, um, I'm uh, and so I've been telling him about all the same stuff. And he decides, now he's got a master's in education. He decides to go back to uh, UMass Amherst and get a, uh, an EDD degree, a doctor of education degree, to advance his career. And he finishes his EDD, and then he says, this is about 1998, he says, uh, now that I have an EDD, I should learn how to write grants. He says, I want to learn to write a grant. But he says, you know, the first grant you write is just for practice, because nobody ever gets their first grant. He says, uh, Let's brainstorm some ideas. So I give him a bunch of ideas, including this model of emotions and learning that I've been kicking around now for almost 15 years. He says, he says, well, this is so far, you know, over the horizon that it'll never get funded, but it's a good one to write up because nobody will ever have heard of it. So, so he writes up a grant proposal to the National Science Foundation on this emotions and learning. And my friend at MIT, Ross Picard, she signs on to it also. We submit this grant proposal to the NSF around 1999, and lo and behold, it gets funded. We write our very first paper after we get funded around 2000, just basically presenting the theory. There's no results. All we've got is this, this mathematical theory. And we write a paper, the three of us write a paper, and we present it at a conference at Madison, Wisconsin, called the International Conference on Advanced Learning Technologies. Right now it's 2001. So I, I go to Madison and I, I present this paper, which is basically a theory paper. And at the end of the conference, the last day, we're sitting at the uh, banquet, chatting with somebody I met at the conference. I'm chatting away amiably, and she says to me, Barry, they just called your name. I said, what? She said, you just won the best theory paper award. <laughs> so I look up, and sure enough, our, our paper right out of the box wins the best theory paper on this theory of emotions and learning that was an entirely novel theory nowhere in the literature at all um, up until that time. So that's the story of um, how this theory came to be from a single anecdotal observation in 1984-85 uh, through this long gestation period until we finally published it in uh, 2001. There were people who thought that emotions and learning were connected. Um, in the mid-90s, there was a professor, I think she's at Harvard, named Patric Patricia Vale. And she wrote a book called Emotions, the On-Off Switch for Learning in the mid-90s. Um, and so she had identified that emotions were connected to learning. 
but only that they're connected. No, no mathematical model, only a qualitative observations are connected in, in the same way that I have noticed this singular uh, anecdotal observation of an, of an extreme emotional outburst connected to a, an aha moment. So what we did is um, not so much notice that emotions are connected to learning, but come up with a mathematical model that was unprecedented in literature that, that gave a, uh, a model. And what's interesting about the model is it, it's not limited to human learning um, or even animal learning. It, it would apply to any learning being or any learning system, be it made of meat like us or animals or made of silicon like learning machines, learning computers, um, autonomous learning systems of the 21st century, or even imaginable alien life. Um, that's able to learn. So anything that's able to learn is going to have a learning curve. And um, in general, um, even if you're uh, an optimal scientific learner, systematic learner, you're still going to form hypotheses which turn out to be mistaken. There's no reason why your very first hypothesis out of the box is going to hold up after you, you know, you test it and, and um, evaluate it. So, so any kind of learning being or learning system is going to form hypotheses, test them, occasionally become disappointed because the hypotheses don't make good predictions, and then have to discard them and replace them with a better model. And so a learning curve will always have these wiggles in it, these second derivatives and higher order derivatives. And so in humans, we experience those wiggles as emotions. Now my, my colleague at MIT prefers the term affect, because affect is sort of a, a more clinically neutral term, but um, whether you call it affect or emotions or whatever vocabulary term you like, you're going to have the second derivative, the, the wiggles of learning curve for any learning system. And so what we call emotions, any learning being or any learning system will have something analogous to it, which means that when we start to see um, adaptive learning systems of the 21st century, they will have states, confusion, puzzlement, uh, disappointment, what we, the terms that we use, they will have those similar states. And we might as well um, agree to use the same vocabulary terms rather than invent a whole new set of vocabulary terms. So emotions are inherently connected to learning, at least some emotions. And, and in, the, um, in the paper, I, I identify half a dozen um, of the uh, motion axes. I'll, I'll just I'll read them off here. So the very first axis that I identified was what I call the anxiety confidence axis. Um, if you don't have a good scientific model to predict what's going to happen, you have anxiety or worry. And if you have a very good model that makes very good predictions, your anxiety is replaced by confidence. So we don't like anxiety, and uh, if our anxiety is caused by not knowing, not having a good model, then that motivates us to learn. And if learning is successful, the anxiety subsides and we get confidence. Now, of course, if you have too much anxiety, it can actually interfere with the learning process. Um, back in 1985, in that story, uh, the woman that I was coaching had so much math anxiety that it, it basically... Um, in, interfere with her learning process, and she needed a person like me, a coach or a mentor, to sort of walk her through it. The second axis uh, that I list is boredom versus fascination. 
So if you're not learning, you get bored. And uh, what you'd like is to study something that's absolutely intriguing and fascinating. So boredom and fascination is the second axis. If you're trying to uh, solve a problem and you don't know how, you get frustrated. If you figure out how to solve a puzzle, you have euphoria. So there's this frustration, euphoria axis, just from the third axis. The fourth axis is a what I call the spirit axis. You can be dispirited, kind of, you know, becoming despair, despairing, um, and giving up hope uh, versus encouraged or hopeful. So there's this dispirited versus encouraged uh, spirit axis. Fourth axis is a fear axis. So on the extreme in terror versus enchantment or awe. So terror versus enchantment axis. And the sixth axis in my catalog is embarrassment versus pride. So those are, I think, the six most important emotion axes. Anxiety, confidence, boredom, fascination, frustration, euphoria, dispirited, encouraged, terror, enchantment, and humiliation, pride. Those, I think, are the um, uh, six most uh, salient emotion axes that are in play um, when one's engaged in the learning process.